Due to the sensitive nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, sexual abuse of minors, and death that may be disturbing for some listeners. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. February 1993. Around 9.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning, ATF agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms acted on a tip about a stockpile of illegal weapons. The weapons were being held on a compound in Waco, Texas, home to the Branch Davidians, a religious group led by a man named David Koresh. The ATF surrounded the compound. They had two different warrants, one to search Koresh's Mount Carmel residence, another for Koresh's arrest. But before the agency could move in, gunfire erupted. Nobody could tell which side shot first, but one thing was clear. Koresh refused to surrender. As bullets sprayed in both directions, he preached passages from the Bible. As the gunfire died down, four ATF agents and six members of the Branch Davidians lay dead, and many more wounded. The losses were just the beginning, though. In the weeks to come, many more lives would be claimed, including innocent children. And ultimately, the standoff at Waco would become one of the most controversial tragedies in American history. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Waco Siege. In 1993, the 51-day standoff between the FBI and David Koresh's Branch Davidians garnered the attention of millions of Americans. Yet a quarter of a century later, we're still dissecting just how Waco grew so violent. In this episode, we'll explore the formation of the Branch Davidians and follow the journey of federal investigators in the days leading up to the siege. Then we'll cover the standoff that began on February 28th and would end with the loss of more than 80 lives. Next time, we'll examine three conspiracy theories about the Waco siege. Even as the standoff was in progress, there were questions about who fired the first shots. And in the tragedy's aftermath, some blame the U.S. government's inefficiency for the bloodshed. We'll also explore concerns about the accuracy of the Danforth Report, the official investigation that cleared federal agents of any liability. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The town of Waco, Texas, once held positive claims to fame. The city was home to the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame and the Dr. Pepper Museum. But ever since 1993, it's been haunted by one violent, confusing moment in its past. To understand what sparked that moment, we'll start by digging into the history of the Branch Davidians, a severed sect of the Seventh-day Adventists. A religious revival in the early 1800s led to a lot of fresh perspectives on faith in the United States. For example, when William Miller began preaching Adventism, inspired by Christian Protestant tenets, he predicted that Christ would return by 1844, and he started a national movement. Tens of thousands of followers prepared themselves for the Second Advent. But the date came and went, and their savior didn't appear. Other Adventists followed suit, though. They, too, tried and failed to predict the second coming of Christ. This happened enough that eventually, most Adventists agreed that Christ would return soon. In 1863, a new denomination formed, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. By 1929, one follower, 44-year-old Bulgarian immigrant Viktor Hotev decided the Seventh-day Adventists needed a change. He felt they were becoming too irreverent. He complained that the SDA spent too much money on vain, worldly goods, materials that didn't nourish the soul. The church didn't respond positively to Hotev's criticisms, though. They stripped him of his fellowship in the early 1930s. But confident in his beliefs, Hotev convinced 37 others to follow him to the plains of Waco, Texas, to start a new branch of Adventism. Hotev presented Waco to his acolytes as a promised land and christened their new home Mount Carmel, a reference to the prophet Elijah. As they built their colony, Hotev named his sect the Davidian Seventh-day Adventist Church. He believed he'd restore the biblical kingdom of David. By the time Hotef died in 1955, the congregation had swelled to nearly 900 members. Afterward, the church and its splinter groups went through a number of different leaders, until the position eventually fell to a man named Benjamin Roden. When Roden died in 1978, his wife, Lois, assumed the role. But this reportedly didn't sit well with their son, George. He thought he should be his father's successor. Around this same time, a rebellious follower started working as Lois's handyman. His name was Vernon Howell, but he would soon become known as David Koresh. Despite being over 40 years her junior, Koresh developed a sexual relationship with Lois when he was in his early 20s. And as he did, he started assuming a posture of superiority in the group and speaking up. 
Koresh wanted to veer away from the more conservative philosophies of the Branch Davidians, while his predecessors sported traditional attire. A long-haired Koresh wore jeans and t-shirts. He offered the younger generation of Davidians a modern, casual approach. To support his stance, he reportedly claimed he was chosen by God as a prophet and to father a child with Lois. Apparently delighted by the news, Lois proclaimed Koresh the group's next leader, barring her son George from ever taking control of the church. George seethed, looking for an opportunity to rid the compound of Koresh and his followers, and that opportunity came in 1985. After months of clashing, George forced Koresh out at gunpoint. A few members followed him, but Koresh no longer had a base. So he recalibrated and developed a new plan. He had already married another member, a 14-year-old girl named Rachel Jones, the daughter of a longtime Branch Davidian. Then a 26-year-old Koresh led a small group of his most loyal followers 90 miles away to Palestine, Texas. Koresh's marriage to the teenaged Jones devastated 69-year-old Lois. She turned cold and hostile and sought revenge. Lois reportedly showed a positive pregnancy test to her followers. Regardless of whether the test was real, she publicly claimed her pregnancy was the result of Koresh sexually abusing her. Apparently unbothered by the allegations, Koresh took on more wives, some of whom were as young as 12 years old. Together, they lived in makeshift tents, wooden huts, and buses. They hunted and foraged for food, just barely getting by. To establish a source of income, the group began acquiring firearms. Though it seemed like a departure from their pacifist ideals, the Davidians wanted to sell the arms at gun shows. They believed the stockpile could be used to protect themselves from George Roden. But as David Koresh expanded his base, he started preaching his own version of Doomsday. He said the Davidians would engage in a great war with their enemies, one that would bring about the second coming of Christ. By the mid-1980s, Koresh had traveled as far as Israel to attract new members, but his goal was always to return to Mount Carmel and claim his rightful spot as the leader of the Branch Davidians. When Lois Roden died in 1986, he began looking for a way back from exile. A year later, George Roden allegedly proposed a challenge to Koresh. Whoever could resurrect a human corpse would lead the Davidian church. Up next, David Koresh returns to Waco. They say time heals all wounds, but sometimes time can do anything but. Welcome to Cold Cases, the new Spotify original from ParCast. I'm Carter Roy. Every Monday, join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases explores the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Will justice be served? Only time will tell. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. 
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Initially, when Branch Davidian leader George Roden challenged David Koresh to resurrect an exhumed corpse, Koresh seemed eager to participate, but he never went through with it. Instead, Koresh surprised everyone by going to the authorities. He accused George of illegally exhuming a body. When police pressed Koresh for tangible evidence, he traveled to Waco to find some, and he went armed. When Koresh arrived, a gunfight broke out, and George hid behind a tree. The Waco leader suffered multiple bullet wounds, and Koresh apparently won the respect of George's followers after exposing his cowardice. Losing his grip on the congregation, 50-year-old George Roden reportedly spiraled into paranoia. And in 1989, George murdered a Davidian, his roommate, Wayman Dale Adair, with an axe. George believed Adair was a mercenary for Koresh. In the criminal proceedings that followed, a court deemed George clinically insane and sent him to a nearby psychiatric hospital. He never vied for church leadership again. Ironically, the door George tried so hard to close was left wide open for Koresh. When Koresh realized that George had neglected to pay Mount Carmel's property taxes for years, he asked a wealthy follower to front the cash. By 1989, he took back control of the compound. Koresh laid low for the next few years. Instead of recruiting new members, he threw himself back into the business he started in Palestine. He secured, hoarded, and dealt illegal weapons. Then, in the spring of 1992, a package of grenade casings broke open in the back of a UPS driver's truck. After seeing the package was intended to be delivered to Mount Carmel, the driver placed a call to the local sheriff's department. Officials had already received reports of explosions and automatic gunfire at Mount Carmel, and other serious accusations quickly followed, including allegations of child abuse. Local authorities started an investigation and discovered more than 80 Branch Davidians lived at Mount Carmel, many of them children. They contacted the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the ATF, and asked for help on the case. The deeper investigators dug, the more worried they became. On February 28, 1993, authorities surrounded the Mount Carmel compound in Waco. They wanted to prevent what they feared might be imminent, an end-of-days massacre. Operation Trojan Horse, as it was called, began in the early hours of the morning. But the ATF and local forces never imagined the extent of what they'd be up against. David Koresh had primed his followers to be ready for combat. He foretold an apocalyptic battle that would pit the Branch Davidians against an unnamed army of enemies. To fight was to usher in the kingdom of God. The ATF allegedly intended to knock on the compound door. If the Davidians saw all the ATF agents in combat gear, 
The hope was that they'd quietly surrender. But before the ATF could knock, gunfire erupted. Nobody knew who fired the first shot, but it set off two hours of heated combat. The ensuing casualties were heavy. Four ATF agents and a reported six Branch Davidians died during the fight. Others were severely wounded. Koresh was shot in his hip and wrist, but injury only seemed to bolster his resolve. Bleeding from his wounds, Koresh preached to the authorities over the phone. Agents begged for his surrender as the situation devolved. But Koresh was only interested in talking about religion. Outgunned, the agency enlisted the local deputy sheriff to plead for a ceasefire. The Davidians agreed. Both parties removed their dead and rushed their wounded to safety. But the Davidians never surrendered. And it didn't seem likely that they would. With the stakes high and lives already lost, the ATF was forced to call in more resources. Waco was now a job for the FBI. By 5 p.m. on March 1, 1993, a full day after the siege began, the agency took complete control of the operation. They established a command post on site from which FBI Commander Jeff Jamar directed operations. Alongside Jamar, the FBI's hostage rescue team, or the HRT, helped surround the compound. While they set up camp, Jamar selected Byron Sage as chief negotiator. Once the negotiation team discovered there were 46 children still within the compound, freeing them became priority number one. But a plan couldn't be executed safely without knowing Koresh's mental state. For all they knew, he didn't believe his own convictions. He was a con artist, but they couldn't take any risks. They needed to know just how unstable he was. Ultimately, negotiators decided to take Koresh at face value. They treated him as if he genuinely believed he was the Messiah. Byron Sage's negotiation efforts began with a compromise. Koresh agreed to let two children out every time a two-minute sermon played on the radio. So the FBI recorded Koresh and ran his mini-message on a loop. Slowly but surely, the Branch Davidians released the children. By the end of the second day, the FBI had safely extracted over a dozen kids from Mount Carmel. Encouraged by the progress, officials offered Koresh a nationwide audience if he released everyone inside the compound at once. Koresh agreed, and by March 2nd, Koresh recorded an hour-long sermon. The plan was for the Christian Broadcasting Network to air the recording later that day. Once that happened, Koresh would lead his followers outside. They'd submit to a body search and board FBI buses to medical care facilities. The end of the three-day siege was in sight. That afternoon, the FBI aired Koresh's message as agreed. But when nighttime came and the Davidians still weren't out the front door, tensions boiled over. The HR team began deploying a battalion of armored vehicles to the compound's perimeter to make it impenetrable. Inside, Koresh reportedly grew angry as he heard tanks rolling in, and his anger worsened once he'd been cut off from the outside world. Jamar had suspended the compound's phone. Koresh couldn't reach anyone except the hostage negotiators. As the intermediary, Byron Sage wanted to keep lines of communication open with Koresh, 
But Commander Jeff Jamar grew impatient. He wanted to move in, collect the Davidians, and put an end to the tragedy. And so did the HRT. They felt waiting would only give the Davidians time to formulate an attack. In earlier talks with the White House, President Bill Clinton agreed it was best to contain the Davidians and keep negotiating. So the negotiators contacted Koresh's top aide, asking if he was ready to evacuate the compound. He tried to avoid the question before finally answering. His God commanded him to wait. Up next, the FBI chooses a different strategy. Now, back to the story. After three days, negotiations reached a deadlock in Waco, Texas. Fanatic David Koresh refused to release the hostages within his Texas compound, and the FBI grew impatient. Commander Jeff Jamar wanted to counter Koresh's stalling with a show of strength. He ordered a stronger barricade around the perimeter, more armored cars, and reportedly additional snipers. On the fourth day, Koresh reiterated that he would not surrender under the duress of force. He said he was dealing now with his father, meaning God, and not with Sage's, quote, bureaucratic system of government. The rift between Jamar's tactical team and Sage grew. The HRT team claimed there was no way the negotiators could convince the Davidians to leave their home, but Sage knew the tactical force would destroy the trust he'd built with Koresh. By the seventh day, Koresh refused to come to the phone at all. So, Sage convinced the FBI to try a more generous angle. They offered Koresh an olive branch, six gallons of milk in exchange for the release of two children. The Davidians weren't happy with the deal. They accepted the gift, but they still refused to release the children. Progress was still made, though. The FBI had bugged the styrofoam milk cartons with minuscule recording devices. They could now listen in on Koresh and the Davidians. But this did little to satisfy the agent's desire for swift action. And on March 9th, Commander Jamar resorted to retaliatory tactics. He turned off the compound's electricity. Koresh responded by cutting off all communication with the FBI until power was restored. Eventually, the negotiators sent Koresh a video camera so he could film himself. They figured in indulging his ego, they could get to know their enemy better and possibly take stock of the children. Koresh used the camera as a tool to try and manipulate the FBI. He filmed himself doting on the Davidian children, shot them playing in his lap or reciting their ABCs. But Sage still managed to mine the film for intelligence. He looked for any details that might be telling. The FBI had shut off power and running water, so something as simple as whether or not the kids had clean hair could provide insight into the Davidians' provisions. To Sage's dismay, it looked like they were well-equipped. Eventually, the negotiators taped a response. Trying to appeal to Koresh's humanity, they showed photos of their own families. But it didn't help. Frustrated with a stalemate, Sage insisted on a face-to-face meeting with the sheriff and Koresh's aides, a possibly dangerous idea that hadn't been broached yet. If the Davidians felt threatened, the sheriff and Sage would likely be killed. But without a better option, they forged ahead with the plan. 
Officials placed wiretaps on Byron Sage and the sheriff, and the two men braved their way to meet Koresh's men. As soon as the Davidian leaders emerged, the HRT wanted to arrest them. But the negotiators insisted they hold off. Sage urged Koresh to surrender. He promised peace if the leader cooperated. When the men relayed the message to Koresh, he told them there would be no more face-to-face meetings. The standoff dragged on for days. Jamar and the HRT deployed harsh tactics to weaken the Davidians and deprive them of sleep. They aimed spotlights into the compound, blasted music throughout the night, and played gruesome sounds like the screams of dying rabbits. In retaliation, Koresh and his group started blasting their own rock music, louder and more disruptive than the FBI's. The chaos lasted until the speaker systems blew out. This entire time, David Koresh said that his people were free to leave, which was true. He told them leaving would come at the cost of their eternal salvation. Eventually, on March 21st, seven Davidians took that risk. They emerged with their hands up. For Commander Jamar, freeing seven people wasn't enough. On March 26th, he ordered the HRT to clear the Davidians' cars with tanks, an assault on their personal property. Days ticked on, and after Koresh promised to surrender for the third time and failed to follow through, Sage agreed. The time had come to explore more aggressive tactics. Jamar and the tactical unit crafted strategy. With around 80 Davidians still inside the complex, they'd use tear gas to drive them out. But with some two dozen children under the age of 15 and at least two pregnant women inside, they needed Attorney General Janet Reno's approval. In Washington, FBI Director William Sessions briefed Reno on the plan and officials met with her for five days. But with so little research on the side effects of tear gas on children, and without an estimated success rate, Reno rejected the plan. Meanwhile, in Waco, Koresh now claimed he wouldn't surrender until he completed a religious manuscript. Knowing their window of opportunity was closing, the FBI sent a slightly revised plan to Janet Reno. Likely sensing their urgency, She reluctantly approved their use of tear gas. On Sunday, April 18th, 50 days after the Waco siege began, Reno briefed President Clinton. He agreed to the plan and the FBI prepared to engage. Early the next morning, armored vehicles cleared David Koresh's car and other impediments from outside the compound. In case of a fight, they removed anything the Davidians could use as a shield. As they did, The Davidians held up their children to the tower windows with signs that read, Flames Await. Soon, a tactical unit flooded the compound with tear gas. Sage warned Koresh's men ahead of time, reiterating that the Davidians needed to come out. But they told him they had gas masks. They weren't going anywhere. Outside, the FBI continued to release 400 canisters of tear gas into the candlelit complex. They'd assured Attorney General Reno they would slowly bleed the gas over 48 hours. But that was before they heard automatic gunfire inside the compound. Unclear if the Davidians fired at the authorities, 
Under their plan's escalation clause, which allowed deadly force, the FBI released all of its tear gas in the span of two hours. Inside, the women and children gathered in a bunker. Without warning and unbeknownst to anyone outside, three raging fires erupted throughout the buildings until they engulfed Mount Carmel. Flames blocked the FBI from entering, but eventually one Branch Davidian emerged, then another, and another. In total, nine members escaped the compound, but no children, and the FBI's crime scene was now burning to the ground. According to PBS, after a week, the compound finally cooled down enough for investigators to look for evidence. When experts combed through recordings captured by the FBI's bugs, they heard conversations amongst Davidians about pouring gasoline. David Koresh's body was found with a single gunshot wound to the forehead. Another leader had allegedly killed himself. The majority of the bodies found huddled in the bunker presumably died from smoke inhalation and suffocation. Others appeared to be executed before the fire reached them. One child was stabbed to death. Three others had been shot and killed. Five of the sect's surviving members were eventually convicted of voluntary manslaughter for the February deaths of the ATF agents. America spent two months following the negotiations. After such an explosive ending, naturally, the conspiracies started. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with our second episode on the Waco Siege. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by John Levinson, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Anya Barely, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 